Hello, and welcome to the Pages and Popcorn Podcast. The podcast where we, Jennifer and... Kalia. Two book nerds talk about movies based on books as well as the original source material. Two warnings. This podcast uses barnyard language. Why limit ourselves to only nice words? Some things warrant not-so-nice words. Also, spoiler warning. We will be talking about the endings of both book and movie, so prepare yourself. Okay. Let's get into it. It's the Pages of Popcorns Podcast. Jennifer and Kelly will edify. It's the Pages of Popcorns Podcast. Jennifer and Kelly are gonna talk, so you better damn well listen. I'm Kalia. And I'm Jennifer. And this is the Pages and Popcorn Podcast. Today, we will be discussing Psycho, which is the 1959 horror novel by American writer Robert Block, which was later made into the 1960 Alfred Hitchcock film by the same name. Yep, that's Psycho. But first, a quick reminder that you can find more information about us, this podcast, and other podcasts in the KMMA Media Podcast Network by visiting www.kmmamedia.com. We also want to thank our patrons for their continued support. Just a dollar a month really helps us afford to keep this show going. More information at www.patreon.com slash pagesandpopcornpodcast. And if money is tight, but you still want to support us, great! Please like and share us on Facebook or on our website and consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends how much fun we are listening to. Help spread the word. We really appreciate it. I am going to do our recap. Are you ready? I am ready. Are you are you set? Are you excited? I am excited. <laughs> you should be. <laughs> Okay, actually, before I start this recap, I just have to say, it has come to my attention that sometimes I am accidentally snarky in my recaps, even when I like the subject matter. Accidentally? <laughs> it's just the way I am, Jennifer. <laughs> so, yes, I don't, I, I'm not going to change that because that is the way I am. I think it's a signature Yes, definitely. But uh, just because I'm snarky doesn't mean I don't care. You know, spare the snark, ruin the the thing, right? To, to kind of sort of quote from television without pity from back in the day. I think snark is good. So whatevs, here we go. Psycho. Norman Bates, a fat, middle-aged, bespeckled bookworm, is a bachelor. He is dominated by his mother, a mean-tempered, puritanical old woman who forbids him to have a life outside of her. They run a small motel together in the town of Fairville, but the business has floundered since the state relocated the highway. In the middle of a heated argument between them one evening, a customer arrives, a young woman named Mary Crane. Mary is on the run after impulsively stealing $40,000 from a client of the real estate company where she works. She stole the money so her boyfriend, Sam, could pay off his debts and they could finally get married. They met on a cruise, you see. He had won the cruise trip and she was finally getting a break from caring for her mother who had died and, and putting her sister through college. So being in love was not enough. Sam decides he has to be debt-free before they can get hitched for some reason. Maybe toxic male pride? I don't know. I'm a simple woman. Anyway, he's back at his hardware store working off his father's debts and she's working in the city and it would be silly for some reason for them to combine assets or anything. So 
Anyways, back to the plot. They have a long-distance sort of thing, but she wants to get married more than anything, so when she has the chance to sail 40 grand, she takes it without a thought. And then she thought a lot and switched cars three times in order to throw anybody off her track and has come up with a big old lie to tell Sam about where she got the money because starting your marriage off with a lie is totally okay. Also okay will be assuming that her sister will lie to the cops for her and also okay her sister will be just totally fine never seeing her again. Mary is a bitch. Mary arrives at the Bates Motel after accidentally turning off the main highway. Exhausted, she accepts Bates' invitation to have dinner with him at his house. During dinner, Mary gently suggests that Bates put his mother in a mental institution after he tells her all about how controlling she is. But Bates denies that there's anything actually wrong with her. We all go mad a little sometimes, he says. Mary says goodnight and returns to her room, resolving to return the money so she will not end up like Bates. Norman is in the office of the hotel and has a spy hole through which he can see Mary in the bathroom. He oogles her as she prepares for her shower and then starts to pass out due to the booze that he is drinking. Before he passes out, his mother comes in and then Norman passes out and moments later in the shower, a figure resembling an old woman frightens Mary with a butcher knife and then beheads her. Bate wakes up because the water in the shower is still running and he finds Mary's bloody corpse. He is instantly convinced his mother is the murderer. He runs back to the house to confront her, but she has disappeared. He briefly considers calling the cops so that she'll go to prison, but changes his mind because guilt or codependence, take your pick. He decides to dispose of Mary's body, belongings, and the car in a nearby swamp, and then go on with his life as usual. He cleans the room and does indeed sink the car with body and trunk in the swamp. Also, the money goes away too. Norman then has a nightmare in which dear mother sinks in the swamp as well, or maybe it's him that's drowning in the mud. Oh no, he awakens. His mother has returned. She comforts him. All is right in the world. Time passes. Mary's sister Lila shows up at Sam's store slash home to tell him about her sister's disappearance. He is shocked that Mary is missing and shocked to hear about the money. It's almost like he doesn't even know Mary after all. They're soon joined by Milton Arbogast, a private investigator hired by Mary's boss to retrieve the money. Sam and Lila agree to let Arbogast lead the search for Mary. He has tracked her this far despite her attempts to throw anyone off the trail with those car switcheroos. But where did she go if not to Sam's? Arbogast eventually goes to the Bates Motel, where Bates tells him that Mary had left after one night. When he asks to talk to Bates' mother, Bates refuses. This, along with the sign-in book and an entry that matches Mary's handwriting, arouses Arbogast's suspicion. He calls Lila and tells her that he's going to try to talk to Mrs. Bates. When he enters the house, the same mysterious figure who killed Mary ambushes him in the foyer and kills him with a razor. Into the swamp goes another car and body, and Norman Bates now tells his mother that she needs to be locked into the basement for her own safety. She resists and yells at him, but he has his way and moves her down, hiding the entrance in the room with a rug. When Arbogast doesn't return, Lila and Sam get worried. Sam drives out to the hotel, but no one answers his knock, and Arbogast's car is not there. Back in town, Sam and Lila meet with the town sheriff, who calls the Bates Motel at their request. Bates tells him that Arbogast was there, but has moved on to Chicago, still looking for Mary. The two don't buy this, but the sheriff seems content with the story. As they try to figure out what Arbogast's game is and why he lied if he did, suddenly the truth about Norman's mother comes out. The elder Mrs. Bates has been dead for years, having committed suicide by poisoning her lover and herself. The young Norman had a nervous breakdown after finding them and was sent for a time to a mental institution. Sam and Lila are still not convinced. Arbogast said he saw someone in the house. Maybe it was Mary. Maybe she's being held prisoner. They lean on the sheriff again and he agrees to go out and see Norman, which he does, and Norman tells the same lies and the sheriff searches his house but finds nothing. 
The case is cold, according to the sheriff. But Lila and Sam are still not convinced, and off they go to the motel to investigate. They pretend to want a room and get the one that Mary was in when they find the earring that Norman has missed during his cleaning. Sam distracts Bates while Lila goes to get the sheriff, but she actually goes up to the house to investigate on her own. There she finds various books on occultism, abnormal psychology, metaphysics, Marquis de Sade, porn. Bates knows who they are and why they are really there. During a conversation with Sam, he says that his mother has only pretended to be dead and had communicated with him when he was in the institution. Bates then tells Sam that Lila tricked him and has gone up to the house and that his mother will be waiting for her. Bates then knocks Sam unconscious with a liquor bottle. Thankfully, the sheriff shows up just in time to rouse Sam and then they both hear screaming from the house. Because in the house, Lila is horrified to discover Mrs. Bates' mummified corpse on the floor in the fruit cellar. As she screams, a figure dressed haphazardly in women's clothes rushes into the room with a knife, screaming, I'm a Norma Bates. I am Norma Bates. Sam and the sheriff bust in and subdue Norman before he can harm Lila. Later, the county highway crew is out dredging the swamp to uncover the automobiles, revealing the bodies of Mary and Arbogast. A media frenzy imagines countless additional victims to be uncovered if the swamp is further drained, but the sheriff points out that they're not the ones who are going to have to foot the bill. Sam learns the truth about the matter and tells Lila. Apparently, Norman and his mother had lived together in a state of total codependence ever since his father deserted them when Norman was still a young child. Along the way, introverted, awkward, and filled with seething rage, Norman became a secret transvestite, impersonating his mother. A bookworm, he became fascinated with the occult spiritualism and Satanism. When his mother took a lover named Joe, Bates went over the edge with jealousy, poisoned them both, forging a suicide note in his mother's handwriting. To suppress the guilt of matricide, he developed a disassociative identity disorder, or split personality to the outside world. He retrieved her corpse from the cemetery, preserved it, and stuffed it, and whenever the illusion was threatened, would drink heavily, dress in her clothes, speak to himself in her voice. The mother personality killed Mary because she was jealous of Norma and feeling affection for another woman. Bates is declared psychotic and put in a mental institution for life. Lila is sympathetic to his plights. Days later, the mother personality completely takes over Norman's mind. He virtually becomes his mother in the asylum. Mother reveals that she had to take over as Norman's personality was actually the murderous, psychotic one. Mother? She is harmless. In fact, she'd never even heard a fly. And now for the movie. Like I said, Psycho, the 1960 American psychological horror thriller film produced and directed by Alfred Hitchcock. Screenplay written by Joseph Stefano, based on the novel by the same name as I said before by Robert Block. During a lunchtime tryst in a Phoenix hotel, real estate secretary Marion Crane and her boyfriend Sam discuss how they cannot afford to get married because of Sam's debts. After some more canoodling, Marion returns to work, where a lecherous and overly rich client leaves $40,000 cash payment on a property, after flirting with her, of course. Marion's boss asks her to deposit the money in the bank and allows her to leave early after she complains of a headache. Once home, Marion packs a suitcase, puts the money in her purse, and drives away. As she heads out of town, her boss sees her at a stoplight. He's puzzled, and she's tense, and our adventure has begun. En route to Fairville, Marion stops her car at the side of the road and falls asleep. She's awakened the next morning by a California Highway Patrol officer, and she's super nervous and acts super shady, and the officer decides to follow her. Marion stops at a Bakersfield automobile dealership and trades in her car, which has Arizona license plates, for a new vehicle with California plates. 
she's still acting overly weird and guilty, and a used car dealer is suspicious, but goes along with it anyways. She's practically screaming, I'm running away from something, and almost leaves her suitcase behind in her hurry. The police officer watches her drive away, but apparently his part in all of this is done, because we never see him again. During a rainstorm, Marion stops for the night at the Bates Motel and hides the stolen money inside a newspaper. The proprietor, a tall, gangly, awkward young man named Norman, invites her for dinner after check-in. She accepts his invitation but overhears an argument between Norman and his mother about bringing a woman into their house behind the motel. She feels bad, but Norman has a workaround. He brings dinner to her, and they eat in the motel parlor while he tells her about his life with his mother who's mentally ill and forbids him to have a life apart from her. Also, there are too many stuffed creepy-ass birds in this room, and some really good dialogue about stuffing birds, and some of those famous lines we all know, and we will talk about them later, I'm sure. The main takeaway here is that they talk about feeling trapped, and that sometimes you trap yourself or allow yourself to be trapped. Norman with his mother and hotel, Marion, well, well, we know. Moved by Norman's story, Marion decides to drive back to Phoenix in the morning, return the stolen money. She wants to get out of the trap that she has accidentally, accidentally stepped into herself. She returns to her room, and Norman spies on her while she's undressing, but then runs away, obviously feeling very ashamed. While she's in the shower, a shadowy figure stabs her to death. It's the shower scene. You know, that shower scene. And yeah, we'll talk about it. Up at the house, we hear Norman all, Blood? Blood? Oh, mother, what did you do? Norman panics and runs to Marion's room where he discovers her body. He takes a whopping three seconds to compose himself and then methodically wraps her in the shower curtain, moves the body into the trunk, and cleans the room, including tossing the newspaper with money into her car trunk. Then he drives her car off somewhere on the property and sinks in the bog while eating candy and watching. His only bit of nervousness seems to come when the car almost doesn't sink all the way, but it does. A week later, Marion's sister Lila arrives in Fairville and confronts Sam about Marion's whereabouts. Private investigator Milton Abergast approaches them and confirms that Marion is indeed wanted for theft. He has followed Lila there and is suspicious of Sam. No one wants to involve the police because, well, Marion is a middle-class white lady. Oh, I mean, wait, hold on. No one wants to involve the police yet because it's 1960 and uh, Marion is a middle-class white lady. No, 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 wait, hold on. No one wants to involve the police because they want to avoid embarrassment, or because at this point they all have accepted that she's a thief, but maybe they can reason with her. Moving on, Abergos traces the local motels and discovers that Marion spent a night at the Bates Motel. He questions Norman, who starts off all calm and normal, but then when caught in a lie, his stammering, his inconsistent answers, they come out and they arouse suspicion. Norman refuses to allow Arbogast to speak with his mother. Arbogast updates Sam and Lila via payphone about his search for Marion and promises to return to them soon. He goes back to the mate's home in search of Norman's mother. At the top of the stairs, a shadowy figure stabs him. He falls to his death. When Lila and Sam do not hear from Arbogast, Sam visits the motel. Sam sees a figure in the house who he assumes is Mrs. Bates, but she ignores him. At the same time, Norman is out in the bog, sinking Arbogast's scar. Lila and Sam then visit the local deputy sheriff who calls Norman to check the story, is easily swayed by Norman over the phone that Aragoss was there and then left, and then informs Sam and Lila that Mrs. Bates died in a murder-suicide ten years ago. The sheriff concludes that Abergas lied to Sam and Lila so he could pursue Marion and the money on his own. He finally agrees to go to the hotel the very next day, because Lila will not be dissuaded. At the hotel, Norman hangs up the phone and confronts his mother. He knows that more will come sniffing around, so he moves his mother, against her will, down into the fruit cellar, for her own safety. Lila and Sam show up at the sheriff's church the next morning, ready to go with him to the motel. But guess what? He's already gone. He tells them he searched the house. He found nothing. But Lila and Sam are not convinced. They drive to the motel. At the motel, they gain access to the room that Marion had been in. They search. 
they find nothing until they get to the bathroom. And then they find <laughs> and then they find a clue, a little tiny piece of paper with Mary's handwriting and the number 40,000 in the toilet. Yes. Yes, you heard that right. In the toilet. It's a clue. Now they know that Marion was there. Well, they already knew that. And so now the next part of their plan can happen. Sam distracts Norman by engaging in a conversation, and Lila sneaks inside the house. During this conversation, in which Sam tries to be smooth and totally fails, and Sam tries to really make Norman admit that he was stealing the money and he's killed Marion to escape from his life, which Norman doesn't want to do, Norman becomes agitated and then finally assaults Sam. In the house, Lila finds Norman's childhood bedroom, still very childlike except the books, as well as Mother's room, which is still set up for a person, even has the imprint of a body in a bed. A very exaggerated imprint, by the way. She's getting ready to leave when she sees Norman approaching. Lila hides while Norman enters the house, and he goes upstairs. But instead of leaving, Lila decides to go check out the cellar. When she discovers that Mrs. Bates is a mummified corpse, she screams over the discovery and then screams again when Norman, wearing his mother's clothes and a wig and screaming himself, runs at her, wielding a big knife. Thankfully, Sam has regained consciousness, and he shows up in the nick of time to subdue him. Later... A psychiatrist who doesn't understand about HIPAA, because HIPAA's not a thing yet, explains to everyone that Norman murdered Mrs. Bates and her lover ten years ago out of jealousy. Unable to bear the guilt, he stole her corpse and began to treat it as if she were still alive. He reenacted his mother in his own mind as an alternate personality. This mother personality is jealous and possessive, as Mrs. Bates was when she was actually alive. Therefore, whenever Norman feels attracted to a woman, mother kills her. As mother, Norman has killed two other young girls before killing Marion and Abergast. While Norman sits in a jail cell, mother's voiceover protests that the murders were Norman's doing, not hers. She is harmless. She allows a fly to crawl on her hand. See? Harmless. Wouldn't even hurt a fly. Norman smiles eerily at the camera, and then we see Marion's car being towed from the swamp with the words, The End. Oh my god. Okay, so this seems like a stupid question, but Jennifer, had you ever heard about Psycho before we decided to read the book and watch the movie? <laughs> yes, I had seen the movie many times because it was always on. It's one of those great Halloween films. I didn't know it was based on a book until fairly recently. Cool. Okay. I had seen the movie. I saw parts of it when I was studying film back in the day. And then I watched the whole thing with my ex at one point because it's canon. You know? It's an important movie. We all should watch it. I knew it was based on a book, but I'd never bothered to read the book. For long-time listeners of the pod... People may or may not remember, I'm not a huge fan of the horror genre, so I watched the movie because it was canon. I watched parts of it, you know, because I was studying film and it's very influential, but it was not something I really wanted to dwell in. But because it's October and we picked it, I read the book. So to note, Kalia sacrifices for you. That's right. <laughs> I put myself through a lot. Not just this book, but, well... We haven't announced it yet, but there's another very special episode that's going to happen in October that also involves me reading and watching horror. And so, yes, I'm suffering for my art for sure. La, la, la. Okay, the movie stays pretty close to the book, and I have a list of changes that I thought didn't matter, changes that I thought mattered a lot, and then I guess my your mileage will vary about these changes. But before we get to that and the themes that were kind of superimposed on, into the movie, I want to talk about the original source material first, and I want to talk about the themes that were in the book. Sure. 
in the book, we have Norm. There's three versions of Norman. There's the little little kid, defenseless Norman. There's like the rational adult man Norman, and then there's Norma, the the mother figure, right? And they they manifest in different ways, and we see them. We spend a lot of time in the book in Norman's head, and I thought that the book was made an interesting theme that the book was dealing with was this idea of the villain because and, and the movie does this too but I felt like the book did it better for some um anyways but the, the idea of the villain because in the book you almost feel bad for Norman he's much more of a sympathetic character is he he has some really dark lines he does oh yes I'm not saying I want to have dinner with Norman Bates but come into my parlor said the spider to the fly um (laughs) but he he is more sympathetic in the book he because we do spend more time in his head I mean okay maybe this is just jumping into the differences that matter but in the book he's unconscious quote-unquote unconscious when the the murder happens he wakes up he goes in he sees the body and he's freaking horrified he's he's ill he throws up he he goes after his mother to to, oh my god what did you do and then she's gone and uh, then the psychopathy happened like kind of goes from there but he is he's horrified he is horrified and there's no other dead girls in the swamp in the movie they say this thing oh yeah we have two other missing girls no no that was not the case here. This was this was this moment, and and I just I. You can see the manipulations of his mother and the long term effects. Whereas in the movie, you kind of have that implicitly in there, but it's not as visceral as is in the book. Yeah, because the book we spend a lot more time with Norman and his mother, and we hear the way she talks to him and to him, and all of this, you know, how she rails against him, and we see him struggling with how he feels about that, you know, like at the very beginning, she's in there yelling at him, and he's like trying not to even look at her, he's trying to ignore her, he just wants to read his books and be left alone. And I mean, I'm sorry, sometimes I just want to read my books and be left alone. So like, I, you know, I just, I felt for him in, in a very different way. And then he obviously was very mentally ill. The, the, the difference between him digging up her corpse and then stuffing it versus in the movie, he'd stolen her corpse and they had buried a weighted coffin. So like his crime is his Norman's crime at the beginning, his first crime, I should say, his first big step. Well, I guess actually his first one was the murder suicide, quote unquote suicide. But, you know, I just, I just, I felt for him so much more. And again, not that I want to be his friend, but I'm with Lila. He's a tragic figure in a lot of ways. And that's another thing. In the movie, Lila, she kind of listens to this whole explanation. The explanation ends. Then we, t- you know, see Norman. We see the morphing. And then we see the car. We're done, right? In the book, we have a moment of Lila being like, I'm so sad. He's he's a sad character. Like, she understands. And that is, that's freaking huge. He killed her sister, you know? And to have that level of, I don't think she forgives him. But to just understand, like, punishing him by putting him in jail isn't going to help anything. He needs help. He needs to be in a psychiatric facility. I like that they made a distinction between being a transvestite and having multiple personality. Yeah, and I think they did a better job of that in the movie for sure. He literally says, "No, no, no, not a transvestite. Just where, you know, this is a this is a a mental thing about 
personality, dual personalities. This is not a getting sexual gratification or trying to become another gender. Yes, I too was very appreciative of that because we've, like when we talked about Silence of the Lambs, the, the trope of the the dangerous trans man who's out there, you know, killing women from his hatred. I mean, it's just, it's gross. And uh, statistically, not statistically not a thing so it's it's sucky that that keeps being a trope in literature oh and i mean again like in the book he's this sad unattractive loner he's got this drinking problem and like i said we live more in norman's head we see much more of what's going on with his mom and you know we had in the book we we got to know about his porn which you know fine in the movie they couldn't do that but i think it just adds to I don't know, like Norman was much more human in the book in some ways. And I know Anthony Perkins added the thing, like he was eating candy and stuff. And and okay, so that's interesting. And it goes into like the childlike Norman and all of this stuff. But in the book, he was reading psychology and he had some self-awareness about what was happening to him. And it didn't get super into it, but it touched on it enough. I think there is this idea that we see a lot in literature and film and I I particularly find it very scary of if you're starting to lose your mental faculties, right? You're losing your memory or you're losing your ability to do things or you're losing your sanity. And if you are self-aware to know that that is happening, that is terrifying. And especially if you're only self-aware about it some of the time and some of the time you're not. It, you know, it's, it's akin for me personally of being accused of being crazy and then not being able to prove that you're not because everything you do just makes you look and sound more crazy, right? So on a personal standpoint, um, my mother does suffer from dementia in early Alzheimer's and she knows it. And this is the big tragedy of living with, you know, somebody who's going through this is she knows that her mind is going and she absolutely hates it. And there's so little she can do about it. Yeah. And again, so that makes it sympathetic, you know, and tragic. And it's, it, there was elements, uh, very slight, but I don't know, did you read Flowers for Algernon? Yes. That idea of that awareness of things slipping away is just, is just very sad. So anyways, and, and he knows that his relationship with his mother is abnormal. He worries about it. He just doesn't know what to do about it. He's trapped. And, and he doesn't have anybody to talk to. He doesn't have any kind of a support system. I, it's just, it's just tragic. <laughs> Anyways, I have some other main themes, like the home life situation. Mary is deprived of the home, husband, family, these things that would have probably kept her, you know, safe and happy and not having done this bad thing. And Sam is putting off marriage. In the movie, we see that he's changed his mind. He's literally writing her a letter and is like, I've changed my mind. Let's get married anyway. But it's too late. So it almost feels like there, there's some punishment happening for people if they don't, you know, and Norman too, he doesn't have a, a healthy home and life family. So like this idea that if you have a, an actual healthy home life, whether that be because you have a loving mother, not a crazy mother, or it because you, you know, actually get that husband and wife situation sorted out, that you'll be better off. You know, I, I feel like that's definitely a lesson here. You took that as a punishment. I saw that as being tragically ironic. Oh? Well, yeah. I mean, to call back to LA Confidential, the saddest part of that book is you have a character who finally kind of starts to care about the world and comes to this change, and then he dies. So 
there's Sam. He's like, okay, you know what? Let's go for it. And then it doesn't happen. So to me, that's more tragic irony. Oh, I would say his part of that is tragic, but they, he does get punished. His beloved is killed. In the movie, he definitely loves her. In the book, I'm not so sure. There's definitely, we met on a cruise. We don't know each other. We see each other occasionally. I la, 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 la. didn't get that much love from the movie. Uh, it just seemed like it was kind of convenient for him. And he was like, oh, okay, I guess I could meet your mom, baby. Sure. I, but it, but at least he seemed like I said he was changing his mind. And he see in the movie, he was as motivated as Lila about going and searching. In the book, Lila had to freaking drag him kicking and screaming. He's like, it's fine. And we keep we're in his brain again, because it, it's novels, we get to do that. He's just like, maybe I didn't really know her that well. Oh, she probably wouldn't even like the same kind of music I like. Like he's not. He's dude. Well, so Part of it is they met each other on a cruise, and based on that, they're going to get married in, like, four years. At first, I was like, okay, he's probably married. I had all these ideas about him. This is not a cool character. Nobody would do that. I totally thought he was a con artist at first, too. I was like, she's like, let's get married. He was like, oh, no, baby, I got debts. And I'm like, wait a minute. (laughs) But then, no, he really has debts. But I don't know. And, like, maybe this is because we are progressive women and you know so many years later but like i get i get the whole living in sin thing i totally get that in 1960 you weren't gonna go live in sin i get that but i still don't get why you wouldn't get married and then like she could have helped him at the store he wouldn't have had to pay a person you know like a a person he could have had her help running the cash register she obviously had a you know she was a worker she knew what she was doing she came with some money i just i it, it boggles it's an honor thing it's stupid <laughs> okay it is stupid which is why we don't do that anymore but it is considered an honor thing that you provide for your wife and that you have something to give when you get married you know men at the time were supposed to be a provider that's a very middle class white person kind of bullshit honor that happened in the 50s and the 60s because i guarantee you okay. there were lots of poor so i'm not saying that that's right yeah. i'm just saying that's what the time was but it's setting up you know, this is how they met, so this is why he's involved. But he's recognizing that, oh, maybe we're not meant, but her sister would be the match. (sighs) She's the one who's going to like his music. And it's a little gross. It's super gross, especially when the sister shows up and he gives her this big old kiss because he can't tell them apart at first. And I'm like... Oh, but it was dark. Yeah, dark. Well, it's also setting this up during the murder of her sister. Yeah. So there's an implicit kind of romance even though nothing other than the mistaken kiss happens i'm happy that they took that out in the movie they were just there was not that romantic oh she likes the same kind of music i do and she's so you know blah 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 blah, whatever no that was not there which i appreciated but i i also made a point uh like a little note about capitalism (laughs) because okay again capitalism it goes with your honor thing and like okay and provide blah 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 it's all about money right so she needs the money if they if the it's all about the money that way we can get married because all we need we need the money and also norman's mother had money from you know and then this joe character shows up and he and the mother are are romantically involved joe seemed to me i couldn't tell if he was a con artist or if that was just because we were getting so much from norman who didn't trust him but regardless like he convinced her to 
build the hotel and, you know, and, and do this different things with the money. And so was he on the up and up? We'll never know because we literally... I think we can safely categorize Norman as an unreliable narrator. Yes. For sure. <laughs> exactly. But, you know, the, the point here still maintains with my capitalism thing. There's a money issue that's at play. So Joe's, you know, Joe's younger than Mrs. Bates. He comes in and, and he's a little flashy. And like, then he's like, let's do this and that with your money and we'll buy this property and da 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 da. And then, of course, Norman kills them so again it feels like capitalism is also kind of getting punished here the the greedy i want to steal money so that i can you know blah 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 and then also potentially there's another thread there as well so i don't know that home life capitalism and the oedipus thing is so big and obvious i don't even feel like we need to mention it but oedipus comes to life it's a retelling of that story almost yeah, with the killing of the father being the killing of Joe, as well as, as the sleeping with the mother. Yeah, I just, I feel like we'd be remiss if we didn't mention it, even though it's really freaking obvious. And I'll say it's it's more obvious in the book, again, because we were in their heads, and like, Norman has this dream, and it's like, he thinks about different parts of his mother's body, and he's horrified, but also totally turned on. Like, it's, it's this whole thing. In the movie... It was much more implied, but it definitely, and it was implied through two very interesting pieces of dialogue, which I referenced earlier, but I knew that we would come back to. And that is when he says, a boy's best friend is his mother and a son is a poor substitute for a lover. (laughs) Practically on top of each other are those sentences. Gross. Didn't mean to actually, wow. Anyway, yes. So what do you think about the differences between Mary and Marion? There's some significant changes they made to her. Mary is, she basically gives up a lot of her youth for her family. She is a self-sacrificing character. And then they were never intimate, she and Sam. Yeah, and, and that's one of the things. She she didn't want to, I mean, she died a virgin, right? And, and she, okay, it's complicated because, yes, she was a little bit more innocent in some ways in the book because we ascribe innocence to lack of sex because we're so in some ways mary is more innocent and yet she's more hardened well okay so this i thought was really interesting in the book and the movie both she takes the money like it's like an impulse it's like instinct boom done right and then she goes home and she packs and is there hesitation is there not hesitation at what point does she start thinking maybe this isn't a good idea in the book, it seemed to me that it took her a lot longer to get to the maybe this isn't a good idea phrase of her plan because she's like, I got to change cars. I got to drive over here, change my car again. Then I'll drive over here. I'm going to throw them off the scent. I've got this whole plan in my head. This is what I'm going to call sound. This is what I'm going to do here. Da-da-da-da-da. And like da, she was like kind of on it. In the movie, she doesn't change cars at first. She eventually changes cars. She actually looks twitchy and guilty as hell the whole time. She is like not hard and she doesn't know how to like just be chill lady just be chill oh my god and in her head she's like imagining what'll happen but she doesn't really have the big lie like kind of planned out and stuff um the way she does in the book i think they were trying to make her more sympathetic in the movie by making her you know not such as hard and not able to just be like and now i'm going to change my car and now i'm going to go over here and now here's my lie that i'm practicing and like a little bit more. Well, of her a... motivation's more understandable in the book of she really wants to get married and she has this looming thing that's hovering and makes her desperate where in the movie, she just kind of does it on a lark almost. Yeah. In the movie, 
because the the guy with the money is kind of like leering at her and like sitting on her desk and stuff, it almost feels like she's just like, screw you, dude. And then she's all driving with this anxiety and ugh, I don't know. Married of Marion, they one of the they changed her name because there actually was Mary Cranes. They uh, were, yeah. existed in the world, <laughs> so thought that was kind of a fun little bit of a bit of trivia. But while we're while we're talking about her and her transition from besotted little regular person to hardened criminal thief lady, I thought the movie did a good job of this is a theme a main thing of the movie with light and dark and black and white right so at the beginning she's got a white purse she's in white lingerie she steals the money now she's in black lingerie she's got a black purse then when she decides that she's gonna go back she you know and return the money she takes off her black you know lingerie she washes herself clean and then she dies okay fine norman is introduced to us in a white shirt He's just a Norman. He's like a normal guy. And then the murder. Oh no! He hides her body. Then he's in a black teak shirt. Like you know what I mean? Like he's he he definitely changes colors too. And I just I thought that was really well done. Very bunk bunk on the head sort of symbolism, but sometimes that works. Do you want to talk about some of the movie symbolism, or do you want to stay in the book? We can talk some about about movie symbolism. Can we talk about the fucking birds? <laughs> well, that's one of the things. Um... I kind of want to bring up is Marion and Norman are a Mobius strip. So in the beginning, you have uh, Marion and Norman, their names uh, contain similar letters. That's not why they changed it, but it's sort of a fun, interesting thing to play with. She's really bad at lying. And Norman's really bad at lying. When you look at Marion's journey, she has this very objective beginning where we see her from the outside. And then we go into a subjective internal world where she starts talking to herself and that very much mirrors Norman. He has this subjective world where he's talking to himself. Their pathways are very similar. When she dies, he kind of takes over the plot Ugh, in a major way. Yeah. And which is very different from the book. In the book, she's in two chapters, the end. Yeah, she only has two chapters that are dedicated to her, but yeah. The movie, it's the first 48 minutes is all her. She dies at like she gets in the shower at the 48 minute mark. And then at the hour mark, Lila and Sam like enter our existence. Or Lila really enters our existence. We've already been introduced to Sam. And then the movie's all about them for the whole rest of the movie. Them and Norman are kind of sharing space there. But yeah, man. Like, And I know that part of that was the big twist. And it was one of the first movies that killed your protagonist to mess with the audience. I get it. It was like groundbreaking. I have a fun little list of other movies that did that and did that well and not so well that I'm going to put in our show notes. Yeah, that was a cool bit of storytelling stuff that they did in the movie, but that definitely was not the way it was in the book. So that was an an add-on that they, they did to make the movie more interesting and exciting and blah, 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 blah. So because this has been in the cultural consciousness for so long, it's kind of hard to go back and see this as a first viewer in 1960. But if you were a first viewer in 1960 and you heard the term psycho and you see her going a little bit crazy in the car, she starts double guessing, would you consider her the psycho? Maybe, unless you saw the fucking six minute preview that Alfred Hitchcock released where he's walking around almost giving away plot points and then pretending, oh no, I can't tell you about that. He tells you so much in his preview that you know that 
that there's this other stuff going on already going into it. But yes, if you hadn't seen his six and a half minute preview and you just walked in, I and I think that they were trying that. I don't know why they did this preview. This preview is stupid. And I couldn't quite find where it was shown or how many people had seen that preview because it was like the, I mean it, it played on television that's that's how long it was yeah I feel like it really heralded stuff I'm also going to link that preview in our show notes because it's worth it's worth watching but don't feel bad if you try to fast forward because it is very long and he's literally walking around the set of the movie here's the motel here's no- Mrs. Bates' bedroom. Here's Norman's blah, 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 blah. Here's the shower. <laughs> like, it's... Dude, <laughs> stop. But yes, I see your point. And I mean, that was that was the thing. It was part of like the big twist and the big campaign was like, don't tell, don't tell. And they wouldn't let people in late. Apparently used to be a major thing. People just showed up halfway through the movie. Socially, we frown on that now, even though I know a lot of people do it. But apparently it wasn't even frowned upon back then. People just strolled in and out all the freaking time, which boggles my mind. Well, if you look at classic theater, that was actually really common. Uh, Shakespeare wrote in scenes that would be boring so people would go over to the next theater over and check out whatever it was some sort of animal game and then come back when they knew okay this is when the beat goes back up sure cool (laughs) theater has evolved yay anyways I yeah like you're saying so she kind of does look like the psycho and I see what you're saying they're basically light versus dark the same sides of the same coin and so you want to talk about uncanny I want to talk about the fucking birds. Which is part of the uncanny. As longtime listeners of our podcast probably know, I hate birds. And you know what I'm realizing now? A lot of this podcast is me telling the things I don't like, which I'm a very loving, nice person. And there's a lot of things I do like. Sure you are. (laughs) I'm very kind. (laughs) I am. I bring sunshine and light to people. I really do. I hate romance. I hate birds. (laughs) Birds are evil little dinosaurs who are out to get you. They're just bad. I'm scared of birds. That's where it's it's a dislike based on fear. So lots of birds, stuffed birds, mid-flight birds. Yeah, they have the wings towering over. There's lots of shadows. It's very ominous. And it feels like you're being stared at the entire time. Well, and even like when she sits down, all the birds are like facing the chair where she's sitting and they're all like birds of prey and like, you know, er, birds. Okay. I'm going to bring that back to a little bit of irony in the beginning when she's having her little sexy time with her boyfriend. She says, well, I want you to come over to my house and meet my mother. I want you to have this authority figure kind of look over and approve this. Then you get to Norman Bates and he's got all the birds instead of having that authority figure you have the mother kind of hovering in this really predatory way yes that's a bit of psychoanalysis well and he talks about how he he stuffs birds but not beasts because they it makes more sense otherwise the beasts are just sad and and da, 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 which we know he's literally stuffed his own mother so like that there's a level there but this was real fun i'm not british but apparently in england bird is a slang term for a woman so when <laughs> when he's talking about stuffing birds <laughs> la 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 ha. Ha, ha it's a sexual thing as well as a taxidermy thing and it's just oh so many levels of this cover which was not in the book 
in the book he had like a stuffed squirrel or something it was like it was definitely rodent-esque and she was like oh but i love that this edition this edition in the movie and the camera angles where sometimes he's shot from below and sometimes he's shot from above it totally changes our perception of who's in control of a situation there's also some toys in the same room so you have these weird levels of predatoriness and childishness Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. anyways norman likes to stuff birds including yes his mother blah anyways but birds are gross um fun fun trivia here's a fun fact the next alfred hitchcock movie that he made after this one was was the birds yes it was so that's fun he's like damn you know what's creepy in this movie it's fucking birds man i guess since we're talking about the changes i have a list of my things i took issues with slash unnecessary changes and then I have my list of changes I thought were good. <laughs> Do tell. Okay. Well, things I took issues with or unnecessary changes. Why does Sam have an ex-wife? He has an ex-wife in the movie, and I felt like it was another way of chipping away at this marriage, domesticity, home life situation. He's failed at this first marriage, and now he's resistant to getting married a second time. And I know he changes his mind, and then she dies, and you know there's no romance between him and Lila. But seriously, I I just I don't know. It was such a weird thing to like throw in. There's a lot of subversion of you know the 1950s home culture. So one of these is the subversion of the romance. So part of the 50s culture, you know, you nuclear family. That's what you're supposed to have, and then you're playing with those tropes. You're twisting them on their head. Here you have a guy, and there's a lot of stuff this film did that broke out of those molds. It's not just subversive because it does something different. It's subversive it does something different to make a point. Like, the fact that he wasn't happily married and they weren't then happily married is part of the catalyst, which leads to all of this bad shit happening to them, which goes back to my original stance earlier, that they're both being kind of punished for not doing that nuclear family thing. I thought it was probably a way because we we start off with Marion not being quite as pure as she wants to think she is. She's in her white lingerie, but she's literally having a nooner with a dude, right? Scandalous. And in order to bring him kind of quote unquote down to her level, maybe we put that he's a, has an ex-wife and, you know, debts and and stuff like this because it just makes him a little less appealing. He's not like this sexy heartthrob guy. It felt to me like they were playing Norman off of Sam in some ways, right? Our male, our two male leads, the male lead. Yeah, for- you have somebody who's got the classic Hollywood chiseled face, who's confident, who strides into a room and takes things over. And then you have twitchy, kind of funky little Norman who stutters. Right, exactly. And yet on paper, maybe Norman nice guy never married shy sam ex-wife sleeping with an un you know out of wedlock kind of a thing i don't know like i don't know what we're what we're really trying to say here um sam is very sexual marion was sexual they get their punishment i i just i don't know i just it, it, it added to it it was like a throwaway line that i'm probably reading way too much into maybe they just needed a line of dialogue in that scene but i was just like that's an interesting addition okay next Abergast, Arbogast, Arbogast, whose name I just cannot seem to learn. Arbogast, Milton, but they never call him Milton, but so I didn't want to call him Milton in my recap. In the book, he had been actually doing PI shit. Like he figured out where she would have like 
traded the car and then found that and then found the next place where she traded the car. And he ended up in the same town where Sam was. And in the movie, he just follows Lila. So he's not quite as competent in the movie. In the book, he was really suspicious of Sam and Lila. And in the movie, he just seems to kind of like, I'm a little suspicious. Oh, well, okay, you've said different things. Now I'm going to change my mind. Now we're all on the same page. Suddenly, I just thought they didn't really do good service to that character. The sheriff was so surprisingly incompetent. <laughs> Surprising to whom? <laughs> Sorry. Small town sheriffs are sometimes really stupidly incompetent? What? I think that's unfair to you know, actual small time sheriffs, but... That's true. We live in a large city and our sheriff is fucking nuts, so... True enough. I, I can't argue that one. <laughs> but yeah super incompetent i'll just call him and ask hey norman did you kill anybody lately no he says no he's fine like dude come on <laughs> again though in the book we have lila who's like no i refuse no i refuse i am so tired of being told by these men in these positions of authority to sit down shut up and wait sam is telling me to sit down shut up and wait arbogast is telling me to sit down shut up and wait and now the sheriff is telling me to sit down shut up and wait I'm not having it in the movie. Sam's a little bit more with Lila. No, this isn't good. Let's investigate. Blah, 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 blah. Yeah, Lila is a badass in the book. She's way more interesting in the book. Just... And she drives a lot of what's going on. She's the one that actually figures stuff out. Mm -hmm. So I kind of like that as a counterpoint that you have all these incompetent dudes. And the one who really solves the thing is you know, the sister. Yeah, and she's the one who's like, oh, well, yeah, I'm going to go, quote unquote, go get the sheriff. But instead, she turns around and goes, of course, of course, though, the men have to come rescue her. <laughs> the sheriff changes his mind because we can't be have all bad about law enforcement. So the sheriff, after giving it some consideration, I decided to follow you out. And then he finds Sam, rouses him, and the two run over there and rescue Lila. And even in the movie, like, Sam has to go rescue Lila. So even, even though it's... <laughs> Yes, woman empowerment. She's the one who's making shit happen and getting shit done. She still has to be ultimately rescued because oh, it is 1960. It 19... Yeah. Okay. A little change. The light in the motel was off in the book. It's on in the movie. Eh, I guess it doesn't matter, but it, it noticed it. Well, from a filmmaking standpoint, I really loved that it was such a bright scene because we almost always have horror films that happen in the dark. You know, you're not supposed to see what goes on, but... I love that inversion that it can be creepier because it's bright. Light well, can be blinding. The actual shower scene you're talking about. Yes. Right. I was talking about the hotel vacancy light. Oh, okay. But yes, you're right. The The shower scene, and that's one of the themes that they did in the movie was light versus dark and the light is blinding. Not only is the light in the shower blinding, but also at the end when Lila finds Mrs. Bates, the light swings back and forth and is blinding and shadows and you know, by the movement of light, shadows are created, right? So there's some great filming with the shadows. And you took this in film school, so I'm sure you talked about it. Mm -hmm, definitely. Uh, not just the, the shadow filming, but the movement of the camera work and what we're focusing on and what we're not focusing. I mean, just it's, it's iconic for a reason. Great. La la la. <laughs> but, but I will tell you that I think that the the actual murder scene in the book was... It was way more gruesome. I think it was ultimately better, personally. Okay, so we all know about the shower scene, right? Even if you've not seen this movie, you've seen 
the shower scene. You've heard or about the shower scene. A you've ton seen of allusions to the shower the scene. The illusions, you've seen parodies. It's literally it you can't get away from it. Okay. However, for my money, the book was much more compelling and and much more impactful. The water was hot, and she had to add a mixture from the cold faucet. Finally, she turned both faucets on full force and let the warmth gush over her. The roar was deafening, and the room was beginning to steam up. That's why she didn't hear the door open or note the sound of footsteps. And at first, when the shower curtains parted, the steam obscured the face. Then she did see it there, just a face, peering through the curtains, hanging in midair like a mask. A headscarf concealed the hair, and the glassy eyes stared inhumanly. But it wasn't a mask. It couldn't be. The skin had been powdered dead white, and two hectic spots of rouge centered on the cheekbones. It wasn't a mask. It was the face of a crazy old woman. Mary started to scream, and then the curtains parted further, and a hand appeared holding a butcher knife. It was the knife that, a moment later, cut off her scream and her head. how the chapter ends it's way more gripping and compelling i liked it <laughs> i don't even like horror stuff but i was like woo. and then i'm watching the, the the movie and i'm like yep okay yep and oh yeah oh okay now up oh, and okay now we're done again having grown up with this as like the social osmosis of everybody knowing about it i totally get how it was super shocking in 1960 totally not saying it wasn't However, today, in today's world, the book, the scene holds up for me much better than the movie scene. As a fun bit of trivia, the blood was actually chocolate syrup because it shows better in black and white. Yep. And there was not nearly enough of it. I know they had more censorship issues back then, but come on. <laughs> like, there just wasn't enough of blood. I bleed more than that when I nick myself shaving. <laughs> Uh, just yeah there, there's a lot of stuff that the, the film could do and there's only so much stuff it could do so when she's pulling on the shower curtain it, it's a quick flash but there's like no marks there's no bloody wounds it's just a pure you know very pretty naked woman that's that's it there's no sign of all the violence that just happened to her seriously speaking of that shower scene kind of tangentially in the book Norman drinks passes out that's when this other personality manifests, which is in keeping with actual psychiatry and psychology and dissociative issues, coming to and not having remembrances, etc. In the movie, there's no alcoholism. It's just sometimes he is, sometimes he's not. But he seems way more aware of what he's doing in the movie, that he's flipping back and forth. And to me, it felt it felt like cheating. The book cheats too, not saying that the book didn't. The book cheats by having conversations and she's standing next to him and blah, 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 blah. So by the time you get to the end and you're like, she's not even there, you're like, dude, what the hell, man? But the movie cheats also because like she's in the window and then she leaves the window and then he opens the door, not, you know, 15 seconds later and he's dressed as Norman. You know, at one point 
he's when when Abergost Ab, Ar, when Milton dies, you know, we see Norman cleaning the the rooms and he's, you know, he kind of goes behind the building and then Milton leaves the office, walks up to the house and then the mother, Norma, she's at the top of the stairs ready to kill him. It just, it bothered me. I personally like mysteries if that if you follow along and you're paying really close attention, you have like at least a small shot in hell of solving it. Maybe not all the stuff, like you're not Miss Marple and you're not Pierrot. You don't even have to be as, as obvious as Jessica Fletcher. I get it. But there should be some stuff that you can kind of go, oh, because otherwise it just feels like you've just been lied to for the sake of being manipulated to for the sake of the twist. Personally, I don't. I don't like that as much and I felt like both of these things did it but the movie did it so majorly I wonder if you're gonna say well Kaylee you already knew the twist so you were reading it knowing that actually uh, the director of our last podcast uh, Truffaut who uh, did Fahrenheit 451 he said the same thing there there's a lot of cheating that's going on in this movie mm-hmm and I would agree because Truffaut is amazing. <laughs> Everybody should go watch Fortnite 451, the 1966 version. <laughs> Anyways, yes. Okay. And Norman does weird ass things. Like, okay, again, he, he takes so little time in mourning the death of this body and like dealing with that. He seems shocked, but not also he gets over it super fast. And then he's like, okay, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. And then he moves the car. And this totally took me out of it. The car is parked in front and he gets in the car and then he basically just rotates it so that the, the trunk is a little bit closer to the fr- of the door where he's going to bring the body out. Why? I was mainly wondering, you know, as somebody who, who knows a bit about Phoenix in California, where the fuck did this swamp come from? Don't you know that we have bogs here in the in the Central yeah. Valley? Because they were obviously somewhere between Fresno and Sacramento based on how long it took her to get from, like, she went to Bakersfield and then she's... Yeah, so she turns off on Bakersfield and talks about Los Angeles, but the valley is goddamn dry. Yeah, I'm, yeah, for sure. No, but he moves the car. He gets in the car, moves the car three feet, gets out of the car, goes in, back into the hotel room. That is my issue. Because then what he does is he puts the body in the trunk. Sure, we got to know that the body is in the trunk so that then he can go sink the car, which also makes sense. It's in the book. He sinks the car, get rid of the evidence, blah, blah, blah. All of that is fine. He literally did not need to move the car the three feet to put the body in the trunk. It just adds more work. It doesn't actually help anything. He's not being more sneaky about it. It's just dumb. It's just... And that is one of my main complaints about this movie. I know, shocker, I don't I don't think this movie deserves quite as much credit as it gets nowadays, but fine. This movie felt padded to me. It felt like stuff was added in so that the runtime would be longer, so that we would be able to watch people do shit, inconsequential shit. It didn't add to the tension. It didn't add to the tone. It didn't add to the character development. It was just there. So you could put that in the editing floor and not miss a thing with this film. Yes. And there were a lot of those scenes is my point. And some films are super tight and there's not one wasted frame. And I felt like this film could have been that. And I feel like a lot of people think of this film that way. And then when things like the car, like moving the car right like that happen, I'm like, there's no point in this. And then I just feel like, why? 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 And it just it just bothered me. I know it's a tiny thing, but it bothered me. 
Well, I kind of wonder if some of this, and not to say that this scene wasn't extraneous, uh, but Hitchcock has a way of sort of lulling you into kind of this trancey state. He has some very slow moving scenes where you're just kind of like, okay, waiting for something to happen. There she is driving. Oh, she's driving some more. Okay. And so when the shocking thing happens, you're kind of in a tranquilized state, if that makes sense. I I don't know because when she's driving the music is oh my god we are tense we are tense and the lights are blinding us and we're and I'm thinking about things and I'm thinking about people and the music is I definitely did not feel lulled into anything like the whole point of the drive was to ratchet up the tension the whole time okay that's kind of how I feel about Hitchcock when I'm watching it it's like okay you you have to get into a mental state where it's going to be a little bit longer. It's not shot as tightly. And so you sit back and just go, okay, stuff is going to happen. We're just going to take it easy. Blah, blah, blah. Oh, shit. That thing just happened. Oh, see, maybe in other Hitchcock movies, in this movie, I really did not feel like that was the case. I do feel like it was shot very tightly. There are lots of close-ups, man. There's very few establishing shots. It is up in people's faces. The quality of the film, it's television, right? And you can tell it was filmed by a TV crew. It's its filmed as a TV show where everything is close-up and very intimate, which makes sense for the whole idea of the movie. And the music added tension. And again, I just, there were there were things that I just felt like, oh God, why are, why are, we, why are we seeing this? And I mean, like there's little things that you can't get away from. Like you can't unsee this. You're like, this was obviously filmed in the daytime. They're pretending that it's night, but it's black and white. So they filmed it. That's fine. It, it's a technology thing they didn't have. They did the best they could. But another major thing that bothered me, this one's not quite as little as the car. <laughs> this is a major thing, actually. Okay. In the book, they find Mary's earring, which had fallen behind the shower, the basin wall or whatever. And so they're like, oh, God, it's her. It's not just that it's her earring, because they already knew that she was stayed in the room. Norman's admitted that. Okay. Everybody knows that. It's that her earring has blood on it. And they're like, something bad happened to her. And now we're going to be scared that she's being held prisoner at the house versus the movie where they go into the bathroom and they somehow find a piece of paper with Mary's handwriting, the convenient piece of paper where she'd written the number 40,000 that either missed the toilet when she dropped the rest of them in. Or she put her hand in the toilet, the disgusting toilet bowl water to fish it out. Either, so either it did not go into the toilet, it's on the floor, and Norman didn't see it when he was mopping, or it was in the toilet, but somehow didn't get flushed down, despite the fact that it's a tiny piece of paper, and yes, she reached in and grabbed it out, and then freaking Sam takes it from her and then puts it in his wallet for safekeeping. Oh, we, we could have had a hand-washing scene after that. Oh, and she goes, we know she was here. And Sam was like, we already knew she was here. And then there's no other mention of it. So like, what was the point of that? The point of that was because they wanted to have a scene in the movie where they showed a toilet and then they flushed the toilet and flushing the toilet was an important part of the plot, so it couldn't be edited out afterwards because that had never been shown in cinema before. And this is the movie that's going to do it, man. Yep. And I thought, damn it, you don't need it. It's it's just stupid to do stuff like that. I hate that. Considering the I, time I, it was in, it was meant to be shocking. It doesn't hold up because we don't have that same cultural 
background. It doesn't hold up because putting something in your movie to be shocking that actually doesn't do anything to the plot or character development is lazy writing. Boom. (laughs) (laughs) I just, it bothered me so much. And it takes away from that thing because part of the book was, okay, there's somebody in the window. Is it Mary? Is Mary being held captive? Has Norman found out that she has money? Is like stolen her money and like keeping her as a as a victim like is she being victimized lila's like she's in this house maybe like for days she's like some she's somewhere she's worried that her sister might actually still be alive because they don't know that she's dead exactly being alive and being like used or like abused by somebody and like all of this stuff and that tension is completely gone in the movie they're just like oh look that's piece of paper well we already knew she was here this paper means nothing okay there's somebody in the house we're gonna go talk to the mother it's all about talking to the mother it's like a it's a thing with long-reaching tendrils of frustration for me i just yeah it would have been a little bit better if there was a blood spot on the paper from when she was stabbed something to link it but there isn't i mean even then it it was in the toilet like i just like the water would have it would have disintegrated it was okay let's also not forget that mary died and it was a week later so now you're telling me that this piece of paper has like lived and not disintegrated. That is some strong ass paper is what that is. I did not know hotel stationery had that kind of superpower. Apparently he is not scrimping on the hotel stationery. I just, it, it. And that pen nope. is industrial ink. It, yes, apparently. Yep. So you can say it's a motif with water that she's kind of reaching beyond the grave. Could take it as symbolism, but. Yeah, it's not no. a particularly strong enough case. And my last major issue, again, with the cheating, and I know we just said, you know, Truffaut said it was cheating. They had a different actress do her voice. So <laughs> it was clearly not Anthony Perkins saying the words of the mother. It was a, it was an actress. She's billed. She's credited. Like, she's she exists. And so... It just, it's again, it's just messing with the audience for the sake of messing with them. If if somehow they had even, you know, d- distorted Norman's voice or had her speak less so we didn't hear it as much or it was muffled maybe. But nope, we're going to just cast that role and then pretend that it was him. And I just... It is incredibly hard to change registers like that if they were going to try it. Because the shift is so hard to do. There's no way that a normal vocal voice could do that that shift as quickly so it it is a bit of a tell movie magic being what it is and audio recordings being what it is i don't buy it they could have they could and they they did they mixed for for a few of her lines they mixed three women's voices together and then at the end it was just the one voice so they had some technology that was a choice they made to cast to cast that voice and to not mess with Anthony Perkins's voice. I would have liked it if his internal mother voice was different from the audio mother's voice. Like when he's trying to be his mother. Yeah, something. Again, cheating, didn't like. Okay, but there were some changes that worked, right? Okay. Um, I talked about the colors of the clothes. Obviously, it wasn't in the book, but it worked really well to hit us over the head with the symbolism. The music was super, super annoying, but it was supposed to be, I think. It, like, added to that intensity and that frustration and that discomfort of, like, can we please get out of this car? Anthony Perkins is awesome. Did so well. So, so, so well. 
He's creepy yet sympathetic. I wasn't thrilled at first when I realized that the book Norman is this like fat middle-aged guy in glasses and then they cast Anthony Perkins who's like this good-looking boy next door, tall, gangly, complete opposite. It works so well, he does so well that it's fine and I think it actually makes it a little bit scarier because it's not because there is like this trope of all the bad people in the world are short, fat, and ugly and wear glasses. <laughs> but like no, he's like a good-looking dude. He's like a regular looking guy. You know, I I think Marion kind of thought he was cute, you know, like, eh. so yeah, I, that was a good this change. This kind of goes back to the theme of uncanniness too, because he's likable, but there's, she's off. There's something off that you get immediately when they're in the parlor, just his intensity, his like weird little it is the weirdest conversation that they have and he's so lonely you can tell and he's his clothes are all too big for him at the beginning and then later he's wearing like this black turtleneck and anthony perkins can pull off a black turtleneck very nice just gonna say he he looks better as the movie goes on (laughs) even though his mental facility faculties are going down his body is getting tight it goes into that mobius strip that I was talking about earlier where Norman and Marion have these sort of similarities that are going on. Like Marion gets super flustered. She's terrible at lying. As Norman continues, he gets super flustered. He's terrible at lying. At the end, when you have, I will say like one of the last scenes of Marion in the car, she has this kind of head down little smirk that very closely emulates Norman's last little smile at the camera. They're both looking directly at the camera. There's this tiny little smile. So this is the Mobius strip where she's kind of re-emerging as the mother takes over. Because that's the last scene in the movie, is the car coming out of the swamp. The last thing we see of Norman is the mother taking over the body. You talked about the conversation in the parlor and the screenwriter wanted the audience to switch their sympathies towards Norman during that scene so that after she died, the audience would be all right with following along with him. I thought they did that. I don't know if I switched allegiances because, you know, but I, but kind of, I mean, I, yeah, we kind of do. We're like, oh yeah, this poor sad sack of a dude. And, you know, original audiences didn't know that he was the murderer. So yeah. Until he walks in, finds the body, and then, like, totally deals with it super fast. I feel like anybody should be like, wait a minute. Take a minute, man. Process. Yeah, and from an objective standpoint, this is one of the oddest conversations. When he's talking about, we're all in our private tramps, clamped in them. None of us can ever get out. We scratch and claw, but only at the air, only at each other. And for all of it, we never budge an inch. That is something really odd to say to a perfect stranger while they're having dinner in your parlor. But... From a movie standpoint, it's got so many layers of what's going on with the plot and what's going on with their heads. Yes, exactly. So this kind of goes back to that uncanniness of nobody really talks like that, but it's significant, so we're kind of allowing it, but it's disturbing. And part of that is because they got to move along the plot and get us to that place, but also part of it is to show us those characters and give us information. I think I've made my opinions pretty clear. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have other stuff about themes or symbolism before we talk about the author and Hitchcock? Bloch and Hitchcock. I don't have anything that's coming to mind right now. And so if you wanted to talk about the author and Hitchcock. Okay, so the author, yes, Robert Bloch. He was one of 
the writing disciples of H.P. Lovecraft. He got his start writing short stories and had a lot of influence from H.P. Lovecraft, which shows he even did some stuff with the H.P. Lovecraft universe. This novel came out two years after Ed Gein, the actual serial killer, was discovered, but not all the things that Ed Gein did are known at this time. So his idea of having like a woman's suit, that wasn't known. Uh, but that's what Robert Block uh, attached to was this idea that you have a serial killer right in your midst and you have no idea what's going on. I have read conflicting things about whether or not he was actually inspired by Edward Gein. There was an interview I found from him and he was like, no, not really. It, it, I didn't even know about it really until later. I might have vaguely heard a little bit about it, but it was just in the back of my, you know, basically like the back of his subconscious. He wasn't thinking about it or modeling anything after it. But then I found lots of places where they're like, obviously this is inspired by this because it happened after and blah, blah, blah. So I, I don't know the answer, but I just would like to point out that there seems to be both versions out there in the world. Okay, he writes, Thus the real-life murder was not the role model for my character Norman Bates. Ed Gein didn't own or operate a motel. Ed Gein didn't kill anyone in the shower. Ed Gein wasn't into taxidermy. Ed Gein didn't stuff his mother, keep her body in the house, dress in a drag outfit, or adopt alternative personality. These were the functions and characteristics of Norman Bates. And Norman Bates didn't exist until I made him up. Out of my own imagination, I add, which is probably the reason so few offer to take showers with me. Ew. Uh, so there was some inspiration of having, you know, the murderer next door that you don't realize is the murderer. As far as real life things that Ed Gein did, not a whole lot was known until a few years later. Right. So there, there is some inspiration, but it's very light. Yes. And here's my quote. Though Block was not aware of the Gein case at the time, he began writing with the notion that the man next door may be a monster unsuspected even in the gossip-ridden microcosm of small town life. The novel, one of several Block wrote about insane killers, was almost completed when Gein and his activities were revealed. So Block inserted a line alluding to Gein into one of the final chapters. Block was surprised years later when news of Gein's living in isolation with a religiously fanatical mother came to his attention. Block, quote, discovered how closely the Im imaginary character I'd created resembled the real Ed Gein, both in overt act and apparent motivation. Yeah. Like I said, you can draw your own conclusions. So it also should be noted that Block had written a number of short stories that had this motif and that he had been sort of refining it during his writing. So while Ed Gein did play a small part, and it is really interesting to see how the two mirror each other, it's not Ed Gein. Yeah, there are a lot of conflicting things about what one person says about this movie, what another person says. Uh, there's one where the storyboard person said he directed the shower scene and then everyone else says, no, that was Hitchcock. You did the storyboard thing. You can't take you know, credit for yeah. that. There's also issues of Lay using a body double and she says, no, it's all her, but there was a body double. All the screams are Lay's. One thing that I remember being told in film school was that sometimes directors have to be assholes to their actors in order to get the proper things from them. And you and I have talked about this, about whether or not it's okay to quote unquote prank slash annoy slash surprise your actors on film to get that natural reaction. Yeah, Hitchcock was definitely an asshole. There's the urban myth that they threw cold water on her to make her scream, and that's why her scream sounds like it does, which has been debunked. 
there's another part, which depending again on where you read, the fact is that there were many quote unquote mummified corpses that they had props that the props department had made. And Alfred Hitchcock would hide them in Janet Lee's dressing room. Dressing area. For her yeah. to find. And the, the departure of fiction versus like who knows what is that some of her accounts say that he, this was mean and she was angry about it and she would scream and he'd listen and be like, oh, that one's scarier than the last one. And then there's other interviews with Janet Lee where she's like, oh, no, he would just, you know, do this. And it was funny and, and it wasn't really scary. And, you know, like, blah, 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 blah. So eh, your mileage will vary again on that, whether or not. But Tippi Hedren was famously berated and had a, a breakdown during the filming of The Birds. So Hitchcock is known as being a dick. Right. I am going to take this opportunity right now to apologize to Laura. Dear Laura. I am sorry that in film school, when you volunteered your time and body to be in my movie, that in order to get you to properly scream in a scene, I threw cold water on you. On your face, to be precise. Because I wanted your natural scream and thought, if Hitchcock can do it, so can I. Because I was 19 and an asshole. So, Laura, I'm sorry. Does this film still exist? Not for wide consumption, no. <laughs> Oh, come on. Put it on a YouTube link. No, absolutely not. Um, Talk about nude scenes. Uh, Anyways, I actually, I also punched Laura in the face during a scene in that movie, too. Intentionally? Well, I was supposed to pull the punch, but she was not looking real. So I I didn't hit her very hard, but I hit her enough to surprise her. And then she fell over and it was great. And that's the shot we used. I know I've apologized already, but I'm just taking this time to apologize again because I know that she listens. Sorry, Laura. (laughs) (laughs) Apology would probably sound better if I wasn't laughing, but I I don't mean to laugh. Yes, Kalia looks very, very sorry. (laughs) Anyways, on with the show. So, okay, this movie was a departure from Hitchcock's other stuff. This was his first horror movie. And that that was kind of interesting. And he was really, really, really motivated to do it. You can read all about it on the Wikipedia. There's so many Wikipedia articles about this movie and this book and this adaptation. I, I just, I almost feel like it would be a waste of our time to just read all of that stuff. So we're kind of hitting the, the highlights. Fun trivia. Anthony Perkins got paid $40,000, which is fun because that's the amount of money that the woman stole, you know, in the thing. Um, $40,000 at that time, by the way, is $347,000 today. So there's a fun conversion for you. <laughs> um, Marion's co-worker who's in one scene in the movie is Alfred Hitchcock's daughter. And Alfred Hitchcock's famous cameo also happens in that scene where he's outside wearing a hat. The screenwriter during the writing of this and filming of this was in therapy, dealing with his own relationship with his own mother. Alfred Hitchcock also has talked about having not the best relationship with his own mother. Janet Leigh couldn't take showers after this film. <laughs> and Vera Mills, who's Lila, is actually wearing a wig because her head was shaved because she was in another movie. <laughs> so that's one of my favorite pieces of trivia. <laughs> yeah, there's so much of this film that's been psychoanalyzed. You know, we didn't talk about the house representing the Freudian id, super ego and ego. There's a ton out there. It's, I think it's a great film in that you can have so many different interpretations that it does take a couple of viewings to go, oh, what's that mirror doing there? And why is it doing this? I have a question for you. In both book and movie, Norman is watching her through the peephole. 
in the book, he's watching her from a position where he can see the mirror that she's in. She looks at herself in the mirror. And so she's like basically standing there fully naked in front of him. And he's looking at the full thing. And she's thinking, you know, I want to to be married. I, I want to have sex. I want, you know, I'm still looking pretty good for my age. You know, I'm, I still cut a fine figure. I cut a fine. I'm almost 30. I'm so old. Fuck you. But whatever. <laughs> and so she's like, la la la. And she kind of like does the little jiggle thing that we all do, you know, in front of the mirrors at one point or another. We've like kind of like self appraised and kind of checked ourselves out. So she does that. And he's watching. He's like, oh, my God, she is naughty. And she, she maybe she knows I'm watching. And he's like titillated and horrified that he's titillated. And like we're in his brain and like he's totally aroused. But he's, you know, also scared of that and like all of this stuff. And then she gets in the shower and he wants to like yell at her. Come back, you bitch. Because like it's very close arousal and hate and all of that stuff. There's a lot of the mother voice going in there, too. Right. You know, OK, so that super well done well written in the, in the book in the movie his little people is like looking somewhere else in the room he's like kind of looking towards the bathroom door so she she like undresses and we see her in her lingerie and he's like peeking and then she's like puts on her little silky robe because apparently you've got to wear a robe from this room into that room i don't know whatever uh and so she's like you know getting ready but she's not prancing around she's not checking herself out it to me, it wasn't even a hundred percent clear if he could see all of her, like or if he only saw bits and pieces because she's moving around and changing, and there's lingerie involved. Somebody I was watching this with once said he's totally pleasuring himself while watching her in this scene, and I thought, really? Oh yes, yes, Kalia, that's definitely what's happening. And I was like, wow, I guess I am sheltered and did not pick up on that. So I'm, I'm, I'm stupid. And then I'm watching it recently and I'm thinking, I don't think so, man. It does not seem like there was quite enough time. Maybe it seemed to me like he wanted to, and then that he was horrified and then he literally ran away. And now what we know is that he ran upstairs and became mother and came back down and killed her. Sure. But we, you know what we see is Norman being like like kind of spying on her and then being like oh and running away and so I did not get a, a masturbatory moment did you no um yeah so I'll agree with you on that yes <laughs> thank you I was like I find sex and queer content and and phallic shit and and masturbation all over the place when it's not there so I was real surprised if I was missing something obvious. So I feel very vindicated now that... So this is more explicit in the book that he has problems with impotence. Mm-hmm. And Yeah, he even uses the word. First, first he can't think of the word, and then he remembers the word, which is a really nice touch in the book. So yeah, it's... There's a lot more going on in his head that we can't see in the film. I, I agree with you. I didn't take it as a masturbatory thing. I took it as a mental checkout. You know, there's this part of him that's really interested. He's into this thing that he can't quite get. And so the mother takes over, does all this other stuff. You know, there's the symbolic stabbing with a knife, with a penis. Take it as you will. In the movie, there's also symbolic musical stabbing. I mean, I'll just say... As far as that, if he'd hit her with a club, we would say the club is a penis. He stabs her. The knife is a penis. Like, literally, 
any kind of violent he shot know, oh like, it's a projectile it entered her quickly and killed her like a penis so hold I, on just hold gonna, on just I, just a sec i don't just, know about your sex life i don't know the last time i've been clubbed by a penis or stat but well it, it's a big blunt object no, okay, I'm sorry. But it's like a... They're phallic symbols. It's a phallic symbol banging you and yeah, but we're talking you. about you know an entrance object. Any anything can be a penis if you try hard enough, is what I'm saying. So, okay, but hammers generally aren't. They don't have the same movement. I'm sorry, Jennifer. <laughs> if you get nailed, what's doing the nailing? The hammer, right? Okay, but it's the nail <laughs> that looks like the penis. It's the nail that's got the stabbing into a thing. <laughs> you know, people are walking by and they can only hear my half of the conversation. <laughs> my mother's right next to me having <laughs> to listen to this. I'm just saying, yes, yes, penis are phalluses, but so are everything else. So I'm no, just, they're I... not. A club is, you know, if you're hitting something, that is not... Again, I don't know how you have sex. I don't know all that much about your sexual history. This isn't about my sex life. This is about symbols. But I haven't had like a penis go boom on top of me like a club. That is weird. Well, maybe you should have a penis go boom on top of you like a club. I'd rather do other things with a penis. I'm just saying phallic symbols are all over the place. And if you try hard enough, anything can be... Okay, but you really have to try really hard you know to what? make that a phallic symbol. No, I'm sorry. Baseball bats and and clubs are are my hey, there you can't see it, but he is stroking a guitar <laughs> over there, <laughs> <laughs> pointing out the shape of the headstock. Oh my god. Okay, let's can we move past the penis? I don't know. I don't know that we can. So Jennifer. Was this book and movie, were they worth your time? Absolutely. So the book holds up. One thing to be careful of is when you are reading the book, understand it was written in 1958. That's when it was published. And it sounds really trite in some ways because it was one of the standards that set the genre. The book is very tightly written. Mm-hmm. It's not, there's no extraneous thing. It's short, but it gets right to the action. In uh, that block was a very good writer. And the movie you're saying also was worth your time. Oh, absolutely. It's a classic for a reason. And I'm an iconoclast. And this is what I think. <laughs> I think it's hard to say which one is better, if one is better, because both have their own style and storytelling. The book, I think, did a better job of giving us a more detailed look at the characters. Each of them is given their own background, even Sam, which books can do. But this book isn't very long, so I think it's still impressive. It changes who has our sympathies and who doesn't, in my opinion. To me, the film isn't as intimate or fleshed out. It does give the story more of a cinematic edge, and I can totally see how in 1960 it was such a big frickin' deal and such a terrifying thriller. I think the film owes a lot of its staying power, though, to the fact that it was first in a lot of things, and it benefits from the Hitchcock stuff and the marketing and the uniqueness and the specialness of its time, etc. So yeah, pure genius, filmmaking, beautiful shots, lots of suspense, blah, blah, blah. It makes sense that it became iconic. The movie has that staying power, I think, but I think the book does as well. The book, in my humble opinion, is a better written story. They're both worth your time, but if you had to pick only one to ingest, I would say read the book because it's fast. It doesn't suffer from the hype of the movie. Plus, you've probably already seen the best bits of the movie already, and the movie really relies on the shock and the twist. The story it tells is not nearly as good when rewatched. 
in my humble opinion. That was our episode of Pages and Popcorn Podcast. If you have strong opinions about this book or movie, if you've read the book, if you hate the movie, I'd love to hear from you. You can email us at pagesandpopcornpodcast at gmail.com. Happy Halloween, everyone. Oh, yes. Happy Halloween. We wanted to pick a horror something because of it being Halloween. And I'll say I did not hate this movie as much as I hated The Mist. <laughs> that was our first that one. That was our first one and our first Halloween episode. And yeah. Okay. So until next time, everybody, be safe. Lock your bathroom door. And <laughs> don't steal forty thousand dollars. Don't steal forty thousand dollars. Up at the house, we hear Norman all blood, blood. Oh, mother! What did you do? Norman panics and runs to Marion's room, where he discovers her body. I don't know why I kind of sound like Andy Griffith there. Try to do <laughs> or Opie, or no, who is it? Who's the who's the real dopey one in the Andy Griffith show? I can't think of his name. Yes, it sounded like Barney Fife there just for a minute. Up at the house, we hear Norman all, blood, blood, oh, mother, what did you... I can't do it. I can't make it not Barney Fife. Oh, mother, what did you do? Norman...